And today we are looking at forbidden fruits, the stuff you're just not going to find on your bookshelf. It's not coming to you in a trade collection, in a hardcover, in an essential, in an omnibus, because you can't have it anymore. It was a one-time proposal, and this time out, this time out on Forbidden Fruit, it's Spider-Man, it's X-Men. These are A-list, gigantic icons, and these stories are not available to you. They are gone with the sands of time. If you don't have the original, you're not going to have it. Maybe in one, one instance, 40 years ago, there's, there's some version of it, but currently today, they're not available. You won't find them. Find out what I'm talking about on today's Robservations. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Robservations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. This is my show. We talk about the comics and the streaming and the movies and the toys and and uh, I try and do my best to stay in my lane, my lane of being an obsessed comic book fan of 48 years. Crazy! But my first comic books experience, really memorable. The stuff that sticks was from age 6 on, and here we are, here I am. I have really watched the modern comic book world grow and expand, and you know, I'm not sure where it's going uh, after, you know, we now get weekly high-end multi-million dollar big budget shows like we are getting on either Disney Plus or on the HBO Max platforms with, with, with Peacemaker. But I'm pretty sure that virtual reality is going to take hold at some point in a, in a mass market way in the same way that streaming did. And it'll be home accessible and everyone will be wearing their goggles and we'll be activating ourselves as these licensed characters. I think Fortnite has given you a window into that world. And again, my, my, uh, you know, my kids were at the end of Fortnite, my two boys, uh, they were at the end of Fortnite as Fortnite was kind of in its early infancy during the pandemic was when. Marvel let licensed its characters. Deadpool was the first, I believe, of the Marvel characters to be licensed into Fortnite. That's why it, I, I was so uh, keenly aware. I did run to my son, my my son Luke, who was playing Fortnite. I said, "Here's the credit card. Buy all the skins. Buy everything. I've got to experience all of it." I've, I've told you guys ad nauseum. I was a uh, avid gamer once about thirty years ago. It 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 uh it. My, my, my gaming experience uh, really rose and fell somewhere between the Golden Eye video game that came out shortly after the Pierce Brosnan John, James Bond movie, and then the Tomb Raider game, the first Tomb Raider game, which took everybody by surprise. And then maybe there was a Turok game, and you're like, Liefeld, this is like ancient history. Hey, I, I said 30 years. I mean, this is this is not new, but people would come over we'd we'd play tomb raider we'd play goldeneye goldeneye is an all-time fantastic classic but the truth of the matter is the reason i got out of it is i saw gaming uh taking many of my fellow professionals down the rabbit hole they were missing deadlines or they just stopped working altogether because they became obsessed with the world of gaming and uh that's what they did with the majority of their day man they would plop down on their couch on their beanbag on the recliner 
and and you know TVs were starting to get bigger. The graphics back then were seen seen as state of the art. Certainly up from the pixelized, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Luigi, uh, uh, the, the 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 Donkey Kong games of of the early '90s. I mean, we were Double Dragon. That's what I was trying to think. Double Dragon was the previous like cool. What is it? Eight bit. The, the, those those games that, that were the big thing in the late 80s, early 90s, and, and Tomb Raider and GoldenEye and Torok were like the next level. Now, of course, my kids got into Halo, which, you know, as I speak, is a streaming show now. It's it's out. It's 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 in in your eyeballs. It's streaming over your, you know, over the top, over your, over in the airwaves, and you can glean it on Paramount+. Plus. And uh, Halo is uh, looks fantastic. Everything I've seen from it looks fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm going to catch it uh, somewhere between this podcast and the next one. And uh, my kids were obviously super into Halo. The, the great thing about having gaming sons was that I could come to them, and, and especially as I've covered, and I did this uh, in the Making of Deadpool series. And if you haven't listened to the Making of Deadpool series, a lot of you guys always come up and asked me questions about Deadpool. So this is a quick pivot to say that I did a five-episode 30th anniversary dissertation of all things Deadpool. I am Deadpool's ride or die day one. There is no Deadpool without the guy that you are listening to right now. So I give it to you from day one, the day one perspective. And I take you through his inception in comics, his popularity in comics, uh, his history in comics, his huge explosion into merchandise, uh, the video games, uh, the cartoons, and ultimately, you know, with with his um, super duper success in 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 films. So, but in that in those episodes, I talked to you about the fact that there was a five year period where between Marvel Ultimate Alliance and then there was a Spider Man game. I think it was called Dimensions, and then kicking it all the way back to uh, Marvel versus uh, the 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 Marvel game. Shoot, it was a it was a fighting game, and uh, Deadpool played a huge uh, part in that game to the point where I saw when I would come in and I'd see my son and their friends, they were all just playing Deadpool versus Deadpool. It was it was um it was Capcom, Marvel versus Capcom, that game. Then to follow, uh, there was the Lego game where Deadpool was the unlockable character, and then of course Deadpool's own game. I never held a single. Uh, I, I did not hold one, uh, you know, controller. I did not play any game, but I was able to get my sons, coerce them to play the Deadpool games for me. So again, whether they were eight years old or 10 years old or 12 years old or 10 years old, there's always two years, two years between them. My boys were very competitive. And so whether, so, 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 so whether it was a Deadpool a Marvel Ultimate Alliance game, or of course, Halo and Halo hit, I mean, I remember being there day one, we had all the consoles. Yes, I spoiled my kids. Silly, I did. Guilty as charged. And we, I would just plop down on the couch next to them and watch them. I mean, <laughs> also we had all the Star Wars games. Uh, oh my gosh, those were the, those were some of the funnest experiences. Watching my kids play those Star Wars games and getting to live this Star Wars experience without the uh, you know the 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 consequence of what am I going to live? Am I going to die? Am I going to make it to this next level? To this next level? I just watched my kids do it. I just literally was so excited to watch them. So whether it was, uh, you know, Halo or whatever, 
you know, gaming uh, became their thing. And so when Fortnite was happening and those skins were happening, I was like, you got to get Cable, you got to get Domino, you got to get Deadpool, you got to get the Grey Deadpool. Um, and I was able to watch all that. And it, and, and it, it is so immersive. And so I do uh, believe that the immersive experience will continue. That is where maybe my kids' kids, my grandkids will be experiencing this, the stories that they will be able to unlock. Uh, it'll be like a theme park ride in all of our houses, especially if the screens keep getting bigger and they're more affordable and the resolution of the images stay as strong as they as, 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 as they they are right now, which I, there's no reason to think they won't. And I'm sure 3D components are going to enter the, the, the mix. But my kids, grown-up kids, their grandkids are going to be taking this to the next level in a very immersive, uh, you know, uh, 3D, uh, the, 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 you know, next level of gaming, which, which, which is, is, is kind of upon us now, but it is not, uh, it, it hasn't completely, you know, exploded to where every household, you know, is, 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 you know, putting on a set of goggles and becoming Hulk in, 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 in a holographic environment and fighting it out or Spider-Man or Deadpool or Wolverine or Batman or Superman or whatever. So as I, as I see like where we've come and watched that from my childhood, from six years old, the comic books, to cartoons, to toys, to the live action shows of the seventies, obviously there were, there was live action attempts at Superman in the, in the fifties and the sixties, but I caught all that stuff. I watched all that stuff. Saturday morning cartoons, all of it. I've watched it. And uh, the, the the virtual reality component that will eventually emerge from all this is something that hopefully I'm around talking to you about then because it, it feels like that's where we're going to go next. Make your own, you know, immersive VR uh, uh, experience. And, and, and again, I'll, I'll hopefully... I'll have grandkids that I can say, hey, uh, little little Billy or whatever the names they're calling kids, you know, at that point. Um, hey, little, you know, little Billy. Maybe we've regressed all the way back to the old timey names like Rob and Billy. Hey, little Billy, put this put these goggles on and, and let me let me watch you uh, take on Thanos and, 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 and defeat Thanos and get those get those infinity stones for yourself. Because that truly that's where it's going. It's absolutely going to go there. That's where it's going to get pushed. Because the immersive home experience is is going to eventually uh, become something that every household is somewhat involved in, and then we all turn into the people in the Wally cartoon, and we are uh, we have have ignored the fact that we destroyed our world and our off in space and drinking Slurpee cups in um, gravitational chairs. Yeah, that that sounds like it's plausible to me. Anyway, today we are discussing more, more forbidden fruits. I did an episode a year ago last summer called Forbidden Fruits because it grew, grew out of my own frustration uh, of, of the fact that you cannot access some truly great works, some truly great art. I started with the Logan's Run uh, adaptation. Logan's Run always threatening a brand new adaptation of this seminal science fiction classic. Uh, and and uh, the 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 film that came out in 1976, which um, looked even more dated because it was one year, literally one solid year, from the release of Star Wars, which I've covered here several times. How advanced even to the children of 1977 Star Wars technology was, and the best 
example of that is going to watch Logan's run and watching how limited, but even even how limited in terms of the uh, computer graphics, uh, Logan's run made up for it with performances. Uh, you know, uh, a, a lot of really great storytelling, some some great uh, wire work. I mean, there's there's some uh, the whole renewal sequence is fantastic. But I mean, the bottom line is, um, you know. Uh, Logan's run remains a classic for so many for a reason. And I, I am, I am telling you that what is far superior than that is, uh, is, is what is far superior to, to that is the comic book and the comic book, which was drawn like, um, by, no less than the legendary George Perez in what I believe to be one of his greatest uh, comic book achievements, even early on. I mean, obviously they had given him, as they did back then, uh, reams and reams of photos, uh, on-set photography, so that he get, he could get, um, you know, the actual references of what he was drawing. Uh, but but he put it through his George Perez lens, and even at a young age, George had a very specific style that he uh, would tell a story. I mean, George really only was getting solo assignments in 1975 uh, coming up the ranks. And then he got, you know, this movie adaptation and he had one of the greatest inkers, embellishers, finishers, partners in the art with a gentleman named Klaus Jansen, who, if you've ever heard me mention Frank Miller and his seminal work, Klaus was there finishing and finishing and inking all of it. Um, Klaus has turned out to be, as I re-examine my ch childhood, one of the most influential figures, giving me some of my favorite versions of George Perez and John Byrne and Frank Miller and Sal Buscema. Um, the list goes on and on and on. But they're a great art team. And the Logan's Run comics only exist in your back issue bins. That's why they're forbidden fruit. They are not something that you can buy compiled together as a trade paperback. It's not available. They never... Um, the, the, the Marvel lost the rights almost immediately. They were going to do uh, solo Logan's Run stories that took place outside of the series, but by issue seven or eight, it's one of those numbers, they shut it down. Logan's Run was gone. And it wasn't, uh, according to Marvel, due, due to low sales, which I believe, because again, the comic book was very exciting. It had great distribution. It was on the uh, all the different spinner racks, the, the, the different liquor stores, you know, uh, as I've called them, my distribution centers when I was a kid, 7-Elevens, drugstores. Uh, again, it, it was, it was you know, on the heels of a movie that had a big marketing budget, a big, um, you know, a, a very large uh, promotional presence. So Logan's Run was out there, and whenever I grab those issues, and they're semi-nearby, uh, it's, it's, and I pour over them and I dig them and I wish to God that there was a collection of them, but that's not happening. So I, I Marvel, unless Marvel gets the license to Logan's run, you will never see those comics collected. It's been, uh, you know, what is it? 76 to 86 to 96 to 2006. So we are plus 40, 43 plus years. And, uh, it, it, it hasn't been collected, so don't look for it to suddenly one day wind up collected. And if there's somebody who goes, oh, but there's some underground collected edition in France. Hey, that's not wildly accessible. Um, you, the, the, those books are not, you know, comics that we can readily get our hands on. There is no collection that I'm aware of. I have done the searches. So you have to 
get them in the original comic book form. That is what I am talking about when I am talking about forbidden fruit. Today, we're going to talk about further forbidden fruit that you are never going to see, and two that are wildly, um, like, not only were they wildly successful and popular, but they feature giant names. Spider-Man, the X-Men. Two of these titles you are never, ever, ever going to see collected. Um, one of them is one of the most celebrated Spider-Man stories uh, ever, but because of who he was teamed up with in the most recent uh, iterations, collections, they this, this has to be left out. Uh, this period of Marvel team up was, and I, and I've gone, you know, through, through the, really all the optics with you guys, Spider-Man was so popular that Marvel team up was a showcase. Whoever they put next to him was getting the glow up. They were getting the extra, you know, um, sheen of Spider-Man's popularity. And during this time, at this time of this book was when Spider-Man was, was in the seventies at his all time most popular. Again, this lines up with the CBS live action series, as I've talked to you about, uh, 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 Spider-Man cartoon, uh, the, the, the really boon of merchandise that was hitting the, the plastic web shooters with the suction cups that I've talked about, the robotic, you know, uh, uh crawling up, up, up with the pulley line Spider-Man action figure. I mean, Spider-Man was heavily licensed and out there in a big way and had four monthly titles from Marvel. Peter Parker, this spectacular Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man was the flagship. Marvel Team-Up was the second most popular Spider-Man book. And then Spidey Super Stories, which was their dedicated kind of, um, it was a kid's it was a kid's book. It was put out by Marvel, but it was understood that it was like a, more for a beginner, a kid. It was more basic, maybe two, three stories uh, per issue. It was drawn kind of in a cleaner, almost in a coloring book style of art. And I never missed one because I consumed all of them and they were smart. They had John Romita Sr. and some really popular uh, Spider-Man artists associated with Spider-Man do the cover so that they were just as appealing and they drew you in. And at the end of the day, hey, what? It's, it's Spider-Man battling Dr. Doom. Who cares if it's, you know, got the guy from Electric Company on it says, Easy Reader says this comic is easier to read. The telltale sign of why it was a younger comic is the word balloons were bigger and the fonts were bigger. So it was kind of less writing more pictures and more like word balloons for children. But nonetheless, Marvel team up was their second most successful book in this 1978-1979 period. And no less than Marvel's uh, hottest creative team was behind this year and a half of stories that were tearing up the charts. Again, number two best-selling book. And this is the X-Men, the exact same X-Men team that was bringing you the X-Men and turning all of our fanboy cranks, you know, up to 11 with their adventures. And this same team was giving you monthly Spider-Man with various Marvel characters teaming up alongside of him. So one day they put out this standalone issue. And I do wonder if because of the licensing of the time, if that even attributed to the fact that it was standalone. But in the... Uh, Sword and Sorcery of it all. And I have a great podcast on Sword and Sorcery. A couple of them, you should listen to them. They really changed the game for publishers in the 70s. It Conan became 
and another, like, you know, Stan Lee didn't want to do Conan, just like Stan Lee didn't want to do Star Wars. These are factual uh, from staff at Marvel and from the licensors have gone on record of how difficult it was to get Stan to give them the green light. And uh, fr- from, I mean, the, the people who have, in recent reprints and collections of these, these stories still get, um, you know, validated from the people who are still alive, who are now, you know, in their 70s, but still can tell you and verify the same story that you read in a trade paperback publication of Star Wars in 1978, where the exact same story is told, where Stan had to be convinced to go forward with Star Wars. That also is a uh, uh, probably one of the third or fourth episodes. Uh, uh, maybe it's Licensed to Thrill. I think that's the name of the episode, because I go into great detail about how everyone had to work really, how had to work overtime to get Stan to do the Star Wars line. And again, if that doesn't entice you enough, Marvel was about to go out of business. They were bleeding red ink all over the place, and Star Wars and the multi millions of copies that it sold in the multi, you know, millions of formats was what pumped all the money back into Marvel, put them squarely in the black, and set them on their course to finish the 70s. In, with tremendous success and launch into the 80s where they broke all new grounds in terms of how they treated creators and worked with creators and made creators want to do the best work for them. So that is exactly how important something like a Star Wars was to Marvel. But eight years prior to that, it was all about Conan, the Robert E. Howard estate, and securing the rights to Conan, which, again, you know something is successful when they multiply it. And at his peak, Conan was experienced three to four comics from Marvel Comics because Conan was outselling everything else. Conan was absolutely outselling Iron Man, Thor, Captain America, um, most of the Avengers line lineup. I mean, Conan was a massive hit for Marvel. It opened the door for the sword and sorcery movement, which is why DC immediately moved to cash in on that at the same time. Well, after Conan's stellar success at Marvel, they extended the licensing with the estate of Robert Howard, who was the author of Conan, and they got more of the Howard Estate titles. And 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 so at one bright, shining, gleaming moment, Marvel had Conan, they had Cull, uh, they had Red Sonja, and I believe, uh, I believe Solomon Kane is also part of that same, that exact same uh, library. But 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 Red Sonja was a huge deal, just a tremendous, a giant uh, uh, title for them that, uh, that that they released to much fanfare, much acclaim. Frank Thorne was a immediate uh, was an, uh, an immediate kind of uh, draw because of the, 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 the brilliance with which he drew the female you know uh, fantasy figure and, and all of the uh, foes that she faced. He was very elegant. He understood um, a powerful female, uh, uh, form and in, 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 in relentless action against the backdrops of wizards and sorcerers and magic. It was, oh, it was fantastic. So Red Sony is a big deal. So it is a no brainer that, uh, that they would put Red Sonia in an issue of Marvel team up. And, you know, lo and behold, that is exactly what arrived on the shelves. Uh, you know, when, when, when Marvel taught, when Marvel Comics decided to put this particular issue of uh, of Marvel Marvel team up in into the world, and 
It's John Byrne. It's it's Chris Claremont. It's Terry Austin. It's like ridiculously, like it was the comic book everybody couldn't stop talking about because it's a clever little 22-page yarn. I mean, it's you, you can't put Spider-Man and Red Sonia into the same adventure and not have your mind blown, especially back in, you know, here we go. Wait for me to say it. The 70s. The 70s. Um, so this adventure uh, became, again, the kind of the, uh, and, 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 and here's the deal. As if, as if to underscore everything I've been saying, on the cover of Marvel Team Up, number seventy nine, Spider Man and the Red and Red Sonia, Sword of the She Devil. The big blurb says Marvel's TV sensation. Okay, up next to Spider Man, Marvel's TV sensation. Again, he is on CBS. He is, you know, in these two hour movies. Um, CBS had become the home for Marvel Comics. During this time with the Incredible Hulk show, the Doctor Strange movie, the Captain America movie. The, the, yes, they made a Doctor Strange movie, a Captain America movie. Um, Reb Brown, football star, Captain America, motorcycle helmet, motorcycle to, to kids of the 70s. Look, we, we couldn't afford to be choosy. We were just happy that we got to stay home and watch a kick-ass Captain America two-hour movie on CBS with cool stunts and fun action. But Spider-Man was a thing. So Marvel's TV sensation. And Marvel's number one best-selling uh, creative team is bringing it to you. So, so this was reprinted once in 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 recent times. It was reprinted, but it hasn't been reprinted in many, 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 many years. And and now that Red Sonia uh, is is lost to you know uh, another publisher, I believe it's Dynamite Public Publications. You know, you won't likely see this reprinted again. Stan Lee writes in the foreword in the only time that it has been in a trade paperback. Marvel, Mighty Marvel Team-Up Thrillers. It was released in 1983. It is by Fireside Books. I did an entire podcast. You should go look up my podcast on Fireside, Fireside Books, which were truly the first graphic novels. They actually commissioned original stories. There is an original, you know, 100-page Jack Kirby, Stan Lee, Silver Surfer story. These two guys who had not worked together in over a decade got together for Fireside Books, listen to the Fireside Book podcast. You will definitely come out of that um, more informed than you went into it. Fireside Books was the publisher. This is one of their last books that they published, the Mighty Marvel Team-Up Thrillers. Well, here's what Stanley, who was re- writing the preludes to everything, had to say about this. Did you ever wonder who'd actually win if Cap and old Shellhead really went at it? It's a funny thing. Shellhead is Iron Man, by the way. Most of the fan mail I used to get from readers all around the country would ask, hey, if Thor fought the Hulk, who would lose? Suppose Spidey battled Daredevil. Who'd get clobbered? Can the Silver Surfer really take Galactus? And so on and so on. Being the straightforward, honest, upright guy that I am, I naturally did the sensible thing when asked those earth-shattering queries. I copped out, Stan says. Actually, it's up to the writer. A clever writer, and what writer isn't clever, can make either of the combatants emerge triumphant and make it seem acceptable and believable. It all depends on the circumstances of the story and mainly on the writer's mood. As a case in point, consider our next Titanic tour de force featuring the world's wildest web spinner and a pair of literature's most ravishing redheads. Oh, oh, I can hear you suddenly mutter. What does he mean? A pair of redheads. Red Sonia's only one chick. That's Stan's writing, by the way. Uh, that's true enough. Oh, stickler for accuracy, but wait till you see the jolting surprise and 
in store for you when our barbarian beauty makes her appearance. That's when you'll realize what I mean by referring to her in the plural sense. In fact, we've got another surprise awaiting awaiting you in this particular epic Spider-Man and Red Sonia aren't even battling each other, except for a couple of seconds. Nope, they're battling together against perhaps the most unusual, most offbeat villain that Spider-Man's ever faced. And now, I can hear your next tortured query. How can Spider-Man meet Red Sonia anyway? They live in two different worlds, in two different times. Well, just hang in there, hero. Chris Claremont solved that little stickler for you. Chris Claremont, anyone who doesn't know who I'm referring to must have not been reading comic books for the last decade or so. Crafty Chris is one of the shining literary lights. Man, did, did Stan have a way with the hyperbole? Is one of the shining literary lights in the sprawling Marvel firmament. He's the stalwart scripter who breathed new life into our merry mutants, the X-Men, and helped make them one of the world's top-selling comics. And as you're about to see, he's just as skillful when it comes to old Spidey and Red Sonia. As for the artwork, how Lucky can you be? Chris' scintillating script is titanically translated with the illustrative wizardry of none other than the gifted guy who has brought new greatness to Marvel's Fantastic Four and so many other popular titles. None other than Jolton Johnny Byrne. Wait till you see how masterfully John depicts our little friendly neighborhood wall crawler and how gorgeously he interprets the savagery and style of Red Sonja herself. In fact, rascally Roy Thomas, who first brought the beauteous battling bombshell to the pages of Marvel Comics in our award-winning Conan the Barbarian issues, and he should put in parentheses, that I almost didn't do the deal on, personally served as consulting editor on this landmark title. Just to complete the circle and demonstrate the fantastic lengths that this bullpen will go in order to make sure we bring you the very best of the best. I have one more thing I want to point out to you before I luxurate in the exciting, extravagant, exotic tale you're about to read. You'll notice a very clever gimmick which Canny Chris employed when Spidey and Sonya are together. Most writers, when doing stories about people from different lands or from different times, simply have them speak to each other as though they've been attending the same school and have no difficulty in understanding what the other one is saying. But not in this yarn! You'll notice that Chris made a particular plot point out of this very angle, and I think you'll agree that he handled it with great skill and great intelligence. Naturally, when we start talking about skill and intelligence, that puts me totally out of my depth. I'm lucky I can just barely spell the two words, so since I've chewed your collective ears off, long enough it is time I wave goodbye and let you get on with the business at hand. But not without this final thought that just struck me. Whenever a writer tells you, I've chewed your ears off long enough, or it's time I let you go, or any such thing, you can bet it's not because he's being inconsiderate. Heck no, it usually means he's run out of things to say and doesn't want to admit it. Naturally, I personally would never be guilty of such shameful, ver- of, of such a sham. But watch out for the other guys. Don't despair. I'll be right back, true believer. There is Stan Lee's uh, foreword to this epic, The Sword of the She-Devil, Spider-Man and Red Sonia. And it has not been reprinted in a collection since. It is extremely difficult to come by. I challenge you to get something reasonable. This is one of the best jobs John Byrne ever illustrated. He has jumped to the fore in terms of his ability. I mean, this is just gorgeous. The the depictions of Spider-Man as he battles these kind of slimy demons. Um... The redheads that Stan is also discussing is the fact that Mary Jane appears to channel by grabbing this sword, Red Sonia, and 
basically bring Sonya into this multiverse. And, uh, you know, when, uh, when the two battle Kulan Gaff, this dastardly uh, wizard, uh, it, it, it is fantastic. The, the, the art uh, is as detailed and as clean as commercial and as well rendered as anything you have ever seen John Byrne illustrate, it, this could fit seamlessly into the very best work that he's ever done, especially in the pages of the X-Men. Um, it is such a beautiful comic. When you um, find a copy, you should grab a copy. Or if you can get this copy through Amazon or, or eBay, this mighty Marvel team-up thrillers put out by Fireside, you should definitely uh, uh, grab a copy because... Uh, um, and, and, and at some point, they may have just dropped by this time the Fireside label and just gone with Cadence. But these were traditionally the Fireside books. And uh, this, just shocking, 1983 is, again, one of the last editions that they did. And uh, the, uh, the verbiage and the sparring and the way that they talk uh, between each other is very entertaining. But action-packed, action-packed, a evil sorcerer, has made its way to our side of the dimension in the present, which is in this present, it's 1978. And the dynamic, I mean, when, when Red Sonja finally appears, it is in a full, giant splash page that is just stunning. Uh, you don't see pages of this art ever out in the wild. Um, for, for whatever reason, they've been, uh, when when they do escape, they're, they're, they're gobbled up for giant dollars because, again, it, it only underscores and, um, you know, uh, reminds that this is not a book that is readily available. It is, in fact, a forbidden fruit because Marvel no longer has the Red Sonja license. They regained the Conan license a few years back, but uh, the Red Sonja license uh, was was either in the in in the contract already with Dynamite and not released from Dynamite because Dynamite is still doing Red Sonja. So. Conan and Red Sonja are, are no longer under the same umbrella at Marvel. When Conan came back, he had been at Dark Horse for many, many years. Upon reclaiming Conan, Marvel implemented him in a way that they'd never done before, uh, which was really clever, uh, putting him on the Avengers and having him interact with the Marvel Universe in a way that in previous iterations he had not, and it was clearly part of their sell to the Howard Estate in getting Conan back from Dark Horse, where, he, again, he had been for 20 years that they would uh, find new ways to um, make Conan exciting and dynamic. And and they're absolute. I mean, when you've got Venom and Conan and Wolverine all standing together in one shot, it's a great shot. It's it's very um, appealing. But again, at one point in, in Marvel's history, they had all the Howard stuff uh, under one umbrella. And and now it's um, either they're... Maybe, maybe, maybe Red Sonja will eventually come back and we will get a new printing. But as for right now, this amazing uh, one-shot, which, again, is as beautifully rendered, illustrated. Uh, the storytelling is gorgeous. Uh, the writing is fantastic. It's very clever. Um, Peter Parker is absolutely, um, you know, kind of out of his sorts. It's really good, and you, you see Peter Parker at the Bugle. You see him at work. You see him, him in, in, in involved with his um, fellow workers. He goes home. He interacts with Mary Jane. The, 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 the pivot from Mary Jane you know, grabbing this sword, which then she becomes kind of, it, it's very much, you know, understood. She is the portal with which Red Sonja is traveling, her female form fighting alongside. It's not Mary Jane dressed as Red Sonja. It's literally like they shift space. 
and Red Sonja uh, battles alongside Spider-Man. So even if you don't know who Red Sonja is, uh, there was a attempt to make her a film franchise. Uh, Brigitte Nielsen was in the spinoff. Conan, Arnold Schwarzenegger as Conan uh, uh, guest starred as they tried to, again, do what Marvel was doing in the comic books cinematically and create a Howard, uh, Robert Howard, um, you know, cinematic universe, even back in the 80s. I mean, more power to them. And uh, the the even if you don't know who she is, and they have recently tried to, and I've read several breaking, you know, news stories where somebody has secured the rights and they're trying to make the move, uh, the the the, the Red Sonja movie or, or Netflix series. Um, eventually, she'll, she'll probably become more of a household name than she is now. She was probably peaking in terms of her uh, her appeal in the culture when this Marvel team-up went down. But again, Marvel had the Red Sonja license. They teamed her uh, with their most popular character. They brought their A-list uh, creative team you know, to bear in order to do it. And again, as I flip through these... Uh, you know, the, uh, as I as I flip through these pages, they are just stunning. Kulan Goth uh, is a character and a villain you will see again. Uh, so 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 that that is of of uh, of tremendous interest. It's a great one shot. It is currently on the Forbidden Fruit list as it has not been reprinted and not, and not accessed. So again, as I said, the recent Mighty Marvel, the Mighty uh, Marvel team up did a you know, reprint and omnibus, and they included every single one of the Chris Claremont, John Byrne team-ups. It was, you know, Adam Warlock, Man-Thing, Havoc, uh, Captain Britain, uh, Luke Cage, Power Man, Iron Fist, uh, the Daughters of the Dragon, uh, Ms. Marvel, the the, the Fantastic Four, uh, Yellow Jacket, the Wasp, all, all of the extensive team-ups uh, Thor, oh, the last one that they did together was Thor against the Living Monolith. I actually own the art to that cover. It's very exciting. Again, this was a dynamic time for Marvel and a really sweet spot considered to be the best the book ever was. And when reprinting it, the Red Sonja is omitted. They don't have the rights. And so you'd think, well, why doesn't Dynamite pay Marvel to reprint you know, Red Sonja since they have the Red Sonja rights? Couldn't they pay a licensing fee? So here's the deal. Once Disney bought Marvel, uh, if you were to go and inquire even early on in the first year or prior to, because they knew the deal was being closed, uh, prior to them closing the deal, uh, the uh, prior to them closing the deal with Disney, uh, if you were to ask for a like, hey, I'd like to license Deadpool to be alongside my Youngblood comic at Image. They said, we're sorry, uh, we were already limiting our licensing opportunities, but now that we're with, Di we're with Disney, the Marvel characters will not be licensed out. Marvel does not license out the Marvel characters. Here's what I know. For 12 years, since 2010, going on 13 years, that has been absolutely the case. Now, across the street, you, 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 as, as a, you, you can see the kind of you know opposite viewpoint, where as Batman... Batman's legs are wide open as, as, as he is mounting the turtles and uh, mounting the Power Rangers. And is, is, he, is he mounting the Transformers? I mean, he, he seems to team up with everybody. Batman uh, is available. Oh, Batman and Snake Eyes. I, I saw Batman Snake Eyes. Okay. So, so you've got 
Batman is is laying down with anybody and everybody. I mean, that Batman's brothel is open for business. Uh, Leonardo, Donatello, uh, you know, Snake Eyes, uh, all of the Power Rangers. Batman seems to team up with each and every one of them, whether it's Boom, whether it's IDW. On the flip, when's the last time you saw Spider-Man team up with anybody else's characters, uh, much less the DC characters? Again, you've got this recent Justice League... Uh, You've got this recent Justice League Avengers reprint that they did for the Hero Initiative and to, to go to charity, and it was really in 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 you know to honor George Perez, who has announced that he has got a terminal uh, diagnosis and and will not be seeking any extensive treatment, and has informed everyone that he just wants to go out living on his own terms. And um, you know the struggle for George is real; it's online. You can you can watch along as he shows you you know what could be his last days, but Marvel and DC valiantly did something that they have not done in what seems like over two decades is they came together to create a once, uh, uh, a one-time reprint of Justice League Avengers that George illustrated back in the early 2000s and do it in conjunction with the Hero Initiative, a charity group that raises charity to help struggling artists, freelancers with medical bills and insurance payments and all, all manner of, of hardship. And people were incensed that it seemed to be only a 7,000 print run, but I'm telling you that was a huge concession given that when the lawyer, the lawyers and legal aspects get involved, things get much more difficult and they did not want to create a mass market version of this because Marvel and DC are not Marvel and DC anymore. Marvel and DC are Disney and whomever is owning Warner Brothers at the moment. Currently, I believe it's on track to be Discovery. It was AT&T. Um, uh, uh, I forget who it was prior to that, but Warner's keeps trading hands, and so it makes things even trickier. But Disney, it's Disney and Warner Brothers, or Disney and Discovery, and and, and you've got competing streaming uh, uh, platforms. You've got competing, uh, you know, action figures on the toy aisle at Target, you've got competing uh, uh, theater uh, access, gaming platforms. I mean, and you, and you go, Lifeful, is it really like this? Yes, it is really like this. When you get into the belly of the beast, this is what will be revealed to you. And at the end of the day, you have to realize that that is the, uh, that, that, that this is kind of the extreme uh, kind of, you know, rights game that is being played because one side literally thinks that the other side is benefiting the other like hey our dc heroes are propping the marvel heroes up or hey our marvel heroes are propping you up hey batman standing next to your characters is a big deal and and only serves to help you hey you know uh you know iron man and thor standing next to your characters only this these are the arguments this is the posturing and the, and the positioning that goes into the difficulty of this so, for 13 years, Spider-Man has not appeared with anyone else's characters, or Hulk, or anyone else. And uh, that is by design, and I have had a Disney guy, not a Marvel guy, a Disney guy, tell me repeatedly, Disney doesn't share, we don't want to share, we don't want to split up an interest if Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny get together, because we will always value our stuff more. And again, I gave you a podcast about how all the image guys met to potentially have their image characters put in a theme park and uh, do do live action shows. And, you know, Todd McFarlane stopped everybody and said, oh, I, I, 
I value spawn more. I, 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 I just do. I, I value spawn more. More. So, if you don't think, if Tom McFarlane is telling his partners that he, I, I, I value spawn more, then believe it when Marvel and DC come to the table and go, well, uh, Batman is worth more than Spider-Man. Well, Spider-Man is worth more than Batman. Okay, that's the world we live in now. And so these forbidden fruits are only going to get more difficult. Moving on, there's an X-Men forbidden fruit. Yes, kids, it's an X-Men forbidden fruit. You're only going to get these as singles. Good luck. Red Sonya and Spider-Man stands 10 times better the chance of getting together and having a collection uh, than, than, uh, than this next book I'm going to talk to you about. Now, among the Forbidden Fruits, among them is a series called The Micronauts. I've covered this extensively. The Micronauts, you're like, what is The Micronauts? Well, first of all, The Micronauts was a hit toy line in the late 70s, 78, 79, 80, early 81. Uh, and, and then if you watch some of these toys that made us, The Micronauts was actually the precursor to what they would do with the Transformers. The Micronauts are currently under the Hasbro... Uh, umbrella and occasionally you will read uh that, that that they are trying to get a micronauts movie off the ground they are trying to get a micronauts film off the ground because they believe so much in that property i have covered to you that 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 there is in my opinion never been a greater licensed or greater realized licensed property than the micronauts the creative team on the first 13 issues smacked everybody upside sideways up and up one side and down the other Michael Golden is everybody's idea of kind of the best artist, you know, that ever drew comics. And he only did two extensive runs, and the Micronauts is one of them. And he did the first 12 issues and a bunch of covers afterwards. But he was considered the gold standard. I talk a lot about a John Byrne and all these other guys because they were much more prolific and they gave you much more to work with. Michael Golden did every issue of the Micronauts, and the Micronauts was a fantastic world-building experience. Commander Ran, Marionette, Bug, Acroyer, uh, Biotron, Microtron, Baron Karza, Force Commander. These were all, many of them were reflections of the actual toys, which were semi-interchangeable, but they each represented a different race, the Time Travelers, uh, the Acroyers, and uh, Bill Mantlo and Michael Golden got together to create an, an, an incredible fantasy experience that has yet to ever been be reprinted. Everybody from my age, number one thing that I want is the Micronauts. Just give me those first 12 issues. That's all I need. I need those first 12 issues. I need them like tomorrow. They are magnificently illustrated. The most beautiful uh, depictions of male, female, aliens, powerful. Michael Golden has powerful figures, powerful storytelling, powerful action. Uh, Michael Golden kind of came from a Neil Adams school, although he is one of the few guys that I've ever read an interview with who says and claims that he has no influences. I've read two dedicated Art of Michael Golden books where he says he has no influences, even though his influences look a lot like early Neil Adams. But all of us, from Jim Lee, myself, Todd McFarlane, Art Adams, Eric Larson, Mark Silvestri, all of us, he's the one guy that almost everybody identifies as an influence in their in their work in the modern age. He did very little work, but it had maximum impact. And the most impact it had on any series was Micronauts. And in the Micronauts, there's a different world. There's an empire. Uh, their version of Darth Vader is a guy named Baron Karza. There's a lot of sorcery, a lot of sci-tech, um, you know, people being cloned, uh, body banks, 
it, it, it's it's in, incredible. There's a rebellion. The princess escapes with a very Han Solo-esque character named Commander Ran. Uh, they, they, they are on board a living kind of robot in his bio ship. Uh, the art is fantastic. It, it, it is it, the, the imagery. It, it, it stands up. If it was printed today from day one, it would be the best comic book on the stands. That is the highest endorsement I can possibly give anyone, and it deserves it. The Micronauts was a huge hit for Mar Marvel. They published it for almost a decade in various different forms. Um, and, and at one point, alongside in an aforementioned uh, podcast, the, the, the Secrets of Moon Knight, which I highly recommend you listen to before the show comes on, because I take you all the way back to the deepest origins of why Moon Knight exists, period, at all, from the writer who created him. The uh, Micronauts, along with Moon Knight, were made into direct-only titles where you couldn't send them back. And the reason they were given that denotation is because retailers had to have Micronauts. You couldn't, you know, they knew by giving retailers a few select titles that only they would receive that would not be delivered to the 7-Elevens, the drugstores, and the supermarkets of the time, that it drove more traffic into comic stores because Marvel was trying to grow the comic store market. And so Micronauts, like Moon Knight, was given that special you know, only in comic stores towards the second 50, the last kind of 50% of its run, the last four years of its run. Well, the Micronauts were so popular and so um, just, yeah, commercially successful that in 1983, two issues came out in 83, two came out in 84. Marvel's number one best-selling franchise teamed up with them, X-Men Micronauts which I had the good pleasure of rolling around with again in the last few days in anticipation of this. Again, books that I keep nearby because they are never getting collected. Micronauts has had trouble finding a home uh, that was consistent since Marvel in the early 2000s. The image, they, they revisited the Micronauts, but Marvel, being as dynamic and incredible as they were, created some of the uh, characters of the Micronauts world outside of the Hasbro contract and their uh, contract was was recognized as having those characters be the dominion of Marvel and not what we know now as Hasbro. Characters such as Marionette, Commander Ran, and Bug. And Bug was like the somewhere between Nightcrawler and Wolverine. Bug was, and the Beast. That That's probably the closest to, to, to describe his personality. Bug, yes, just B-U-G, and he, his, he came from an entire race, and he was visually ridiculously dynamic, still is. But he and Marionette and Commander Ran re represent a third of the Micronauts team. And when you take them, you are left with a Croyer, who was probably the best-selling of all the toys, and there were multiple versions of a Croyer. Um, one of the, the, the reason a Croyer was so great was, wait for it, his visual. Fully masked guy in the same way that we reacted strongly, my generation rea reacted super strong to, uh, to to Boba Fett, to the, the visual imagery of Boba Fett, we reacted to the visual imagery of micro, of, of, a, of a Croyer. And a, there was a green and white a Croyer, a blue and white a Croyer, a red and white a Croyer, but a Croyer was the lead kind of muscle. Um, he was very brooding like a Wolverine, but very powerful like Colossus, but he wielded a sword and a power sword, no less. And he was a he was an outcast uh, in Star Trek: The Next Generation when they embraced the storyline of Worf and him being uh, rejected by the Klingons in that epic episode where they all turn their backs on Worf and have exiled him from the Klingon Empire. Uh, b b 
you know, in in the build up to those those great Civil War episodes, which were some of my favorite Star Trek Next Generation episodes, that occurred about a decade earlier in the pages of the Micronauts. A Croyer was turned on by his own people and uh, exiled, and so he is now alongside these dynamic Micronauts characters: Commander Ran, Bug, Marionette. Well, and Baron Karza is still a top ten villain of all time, not just the Bronze Age villain of all time. I have a complete set of my Micronauts toys. I went all in on a collection to uh, re- recapture that excitement about seven years ago. Um, I can't, I won't even tell you what I went in for, but there is a couple times a year I crack open all those boxes. I get all those characters out. Sometimes I post them online. They are just, it, it is a celebrated uh, and, and really um, acclaimed line of really well-designed toys. And the, 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 the playability was off the chains. Baron Karza turned into a centaur, and the, in in the toy would also turn into the centaur. You would unattach his legs, which were together as magnets, and then you would magnetically seal him into the uh, plastic half horse body. And he had missiles on the side, and he fires missiles and all sorts of stuff, uh, you know, in his toy form. But he is that rare, like you could tell they were kind of looking at Darth Vader, but they kind of went one. One step above, I think if Baron Karza appeared on screen, people would flip out. He is somewhere between Doctor Doom and Darth Vader. But anyway, X-Men Micronauts sees both worlds come together. Bill Mantlo, who was writing Micronauts, and Chris Claremont, the writer of the X-Men, combined to give you this amazing storyline. They co-write the book. Rereading it, not delineating whatsoever exactly what each did, Bill Mantlo, I believe, does the separate X-Men Micronauts sections, which especially to start the first issue, it's like a 15-page, like, who are the Micronauts? They knew that you're buying this book because you like the X-Men. Well, on top of all that, you're going to to stick with the book, you know, because it's the X-Men, and we're going to use the first 12, 15 pages to introduce you to the Micronauts if you're by chance not buying the Micronauts. Again, I am certain the Micronauts was selling more coming out of this... uh, coming coming out of this miniseries because it's as popular and as successful and as many copies as Micronauts was selling, teaming up with the X-Men was a big, big deal. Um the uh the 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 story again begins with the Micronauts in the microverse and they are um watching as as their worlds are uniting against a uh they are uniting against kind of a world killer, some sort of supernatural force that is later known as the entity uh, that is tearing through and uh, destroying all the different worlds in the microverse. And it's a great setup because they are on board their their bio ship together watching um, as, as, as this unfurls. And uh, it brings Baron Karza into their contact in these opening 12 pages and Baron Cars is like, we have to unite our forces um, because the Micronauts wander out and try and save one of the falling worlds and they can't and they retreat back into their ship and then Baron Karza is among them and he says, look, we've got to combine our forces. Whatever's destroying our microverse isn't going to stop and we need to team up and and follow this energy source uh, and, 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 and find a way to unite and 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 battle this entity. Now, 
the first thing you notice as a longtime X-Men fan when you're reading this book in 1983-1984 is the appearance of the entity is eerily similar to the first appearance of the uh, uh, dedicated astral armored form that Professor Xavier took in previous issues of the X-Men when he first encountered the Shadow King when they started retelling this story in X-Men 117. Back when I was a kid, again, another John Byrne, Chris Claremont epic where uh, Professor Xavier wanders into a, a cantina in Cairo and faces off against this man in the back of the cantina in a booth. And what they're really, and the name of the issue is Cywar. And they wage a psionic battle where they each take these different forms. And they're like these um, kind of futuristic uh, armored gladiator, like, like what you'd see some of the characters in like Russell Crowe's Vet Gladiator, the way that they would adorn themselves in the different armor and face masks. That's kind of the design sense. But they're battling it out on the astral plane. And there's like a flaming sword. And, and so we understand that, hey, if you're a longtime reader, you're going, this entity that is tearing through the microverse looks a lot like Professor Xavier's astral form uh, as it appeared years ago in the X-Men. And, and, and this entity is tearing through the microverse. It's, in, it's destroying entire worlds. So again, Baron Karza teams with the Micronauts and they know how, how to be distrusting of Baron Karza and they also know how ridiculously power he is, powerful he is. And But they follow this energy source. And then we cut to, which I believe when Chris Claremont starts re, uh, writing the book, you know, this dedicated, beautifully illustrated. I, I'm sorry that I haven't said that the illustrator's name is Butch Geis, G-U-I-C-E. He, he later changed his name to Jackson Geis. Here's the connective tissue of some of what I've been telling you. He's, his early style was totally based and influenced by the brilliance of Michael Golden's own work on Micronauts and, and Butch Geis would then inherit the Micronauts book. This was a giant opportunity for him to strut and he did because he draws a fantastic version of the X-Men to boot as well as all of the New Mutants because you get the entire full cast of the New Mutants Sam Rain uh you get you get Karma you get Danny you get Daniel Moonstar um so 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 you get everybody in this story and Butch Geis just notch knocks it out he was definitely like before he was the Art Adams before Art Adams he was kind of the um the 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 kind of next after Michael Golden in terms of style, he's a great storyteller. Um, was doing monthly work. This is very clean, very polished, uh, very polished work. And when we go, join uh, Westchester County and we go to the X Mansion and we see Professor Xavier and we see the kids getting ready to go through a danger room sequence and we see Nightcrawler and we see the New Mutants kids and it's actually the New Mutants kids, uh, Cannonball and and Moonstar and Rain Wolfsbane. They're all going to do a uh, workout in the danger room when they are attacked through the control panel. This figure comes, but it's a diminutive, like maybe one foot tall version of Baron Karza. But he is still so ridiculously powerful and such a great visual that he tears through Sunspot and, and Cannonball and Rain and, Dan and Daniel Moonstar. He has no chance putting them, I mean, he has no problem putting all of them on their heels immediately. And, and he subsequently kind of really um, wipes them all out. Danny Moonstar briefly tries to weaken him by manifesting, you know, his fear. And it sees the man that he was before he became the tortured soul of Baron Karza, the, the human form he had before he became this kind of technological monster. And uh, 
but Karza immediately recognizes what she's doing and turns it back on her and frightens her with the demon bear from the Bilsinkevich uh, acclaimed New Mutant series. So Baron Karza has felled all of the New Mutants who put up a valiant five, six-page battle against him. And then Storm and Wolverine and Colossus enter the scene. And as a Micronauts fan, you're like, holy shit, this is awesome. They are putting a beat down or... Baron Karza is putting a beat down on them because he is going toe-to-toe with Wolverine and Colossus and and Storm. And then as an X-Men fan, you're like, who's this new villain? I've never read the Bikernauts. Who's this Baron Karza guy that is, you know, taking them out? Well, utter, utter, utterly, um, I mean, ultimately, <laughs> ultimately, Kitty Pride faces into Baron Karza, but it has a after effect in that she merges her psyche with Karza and Karza takes over her body and her psyche is inside Karza, but he is still so powerful that in the Baron Karza form, he's able to suppress her. So she cannot, she's, you, you hear her trying her inner dialogue, trying to assert control over Baron Karza's form, but as he has completely asserted uh, uh, form over Kitty Pride, but he is keeping that on the down low, and when she awakens from their contact, Karza is not letting on to the X-Men that he now controls Kitty Pride's body. Is this cool? Because at the last panel, Biotron exit enters and uh, agrees to, after Baron Karza tells them all that is going down and how he needs their help to battle this entity or all of the worlds are going to fall, and then Xavier questions the fact that he uh, approved the that 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 Storm, Kitty Pride, Wolverine, Nightcrawler, and Beast can accompany Karza onto the bioship back into the microverse. As he in the last panel, he's like, "What have I done? You know, what have I sent my X Men off to? Not the New Mutants. They stay behind. Obviously, he's protecting them as their as their ward. But this sets the stage for an awesome four issue adventure. X Men Mutants ran." Four issues and uh, is fantastic, and it does indeed involve uh, a, a piece of Charles Xavier who has become all-powerful in this other realm as the entity, and he is definitely uh, meant to purposely, re, you know, st- um, stir within you, you know, his form from those early X-Men issues. But he has now become like this world devourer, and only by combining forces, you know. Uh, and I don't want to spoil the remainder of the story, but there is, uh, you know, we still get more of the new mutants coming in and out of the story, and we get uh, the Micronauts who briefly take their role as the X-Men. On the cover of issue two, it says the X-Nauts versus the Micromen because the X-Men get shrunk down to the size of how the Micronauts appear when they're in our realm. The beauty of the Micronauts and their fantasy world, and so that, that, that over 60-70% of the original series took place in their own world as they were always full-sized, and it was like a Star Wars fantasy saga. But when they would come into our world, they would be the Micronaut size. They would be six inches or, or eight inches tall. So again, the X-Men, you know, shrink, X-Nauts, Micro-Men. Oh my gosh, this, this comic book is a blast, but the Micronauts' rights have been tied up in no less than all of the... Uh, Powers that be at IDW for five years tried to convince Marvel to release the Micronauts uh, series one through 12. Problem is, in that Micronauts series, not only did they create their own Micronauts characters that they own the intellectual property on with Commander Ran, with Bug, with Marionette, they also created a character called Captain Universe, who is a Marvel character. They also featured Man-Thing, 
So if Marvel were to ever license out the, the rights to Micronauts, they'd be licensing out not just the right to Micronauts, but a whole other realm of characters that they own and IP like Man-Thing, like Captain Universe. So it is tricky. It is, as Mr. McFarlane would say, caught in the muck and the mire. The muck and the mire is what Micronauts is hopelessly caught up in. This is the definition of Forbidden Fruit. You are only going to get these as singles. You are only going to get these as a back issue. I might suggest that you go on this adventure. It's a lot of fun. X-Men Micronauts, one of the few X-Men books you're never going to get a compilation of. It is 1983. There is no X-Men Micronauts trade collection. And uh, you're going to want to buy these. I'd own it. I would own it if it existed. And I and I would want, as I, as I read this, Sometimes I really like the stuff on newsprint, but this is the stuff I was like, and the Red Sonia Spider-Man, I would love to see it on the slickest, um, most beautiful, most brilliant uh, paper and printing quality that today has to offer. But it's not happening. X-Men and Micronauts, Forbidden Fruit, not coming to a collection of yours anytime soon, deserving your attention. Chris Claremont, Bill Mantlo, Butch Geist. I mean, you've got the Micronauts writer and the Chris Claremont writer. I mean, the X-Men writer, Mr. Uh, uh, Chris Claremont, who we got copious praise of course from uh stan lee in his in his uh write-up to the red sonia spider-man marvel team-up forbidden fruit so the, the connective tissue today is chris claremont he wrote both these bad boys featuring characters that marvel no longer has access to no longer has rights to and they are only available in a limited capacity but i highly recommend so i i do this to open your eyes to stuff that maybe you haven't heard of and trust me i hear you arguing with me and others on Twitter, and some of you have a 15, a 20-year comic book knowledge. You're not going to get it done trying to argue with those of us who have an almost 50-year catalog of comic book knowledge and experience. Trust us. We want you to enjoy these books, and when we, we recommend seeking them out. We're trying to bring the good stuff to you. So today, we had time for two Forbidden Fruits. X-Men Micronauts, worth your time, also affordable. Both of these, I believe, and the Spider-Man Red Sonya Marvel team up affordable options for you to collect and uh, and and see and not on your bookshelf anytime soon. Um, they're they're going to be uh, maybe again Red Sonya Spider-Man has a better chance than X-Men Micronauts for all of the reasons. Even though Hasbro does Marvel's toys and has for almost fifteen years, they still cannot get a playset together. IDW was the last place to have a Micronauts license. And they did, in fact, they were able to team Micronauts uh, with with Rom, who's another Forbidden Fruit we'll, we'll be coming up on. G.I. <sighs> Joe Transformers, they did a whole thing. But yeah, X-Men Micronauts, available in singles. Probably can get them somewhere between three and five bucks each. Maybe cheaper. I don't know. Worth hunting down. Absolutely worth hunting down. Really great comics. Really great ta uh, talents that brought you these amazing illustrated adventures. But unfortunately inaccessible as we talk hence the the moniker forbidden fruits so that there is just a whole lot of forbidden fruit in this big giant comic book garden of eden that we all exist and dwell in and uh again uh two full episodes now of stuff that you're just not going to get collected you're not going to get in a hardcover trade paperback uh omnibus uh, you know, what are those big essential, essential collections? It's just a bummer, but you can get it uh, through the back market, through comic book stores, Amazon, eBay, 
conventions. Check them out. They're cool. This is the time of the show where I read your very generous reviews that you post about Rob's observations about our show. And I'm telling you, I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate it because this show needs them. We need the rankings. We need the reviews. The platform is uh, assisted greatly by the things that you say and your opinions and your, you know, favor. I mean, again, what don't you use nowadays that doesn't immediately go, well, you give it a, you know, which stars will you give it or will you now give it a review? So, so guys, really guys and gals, thank you so much. The show is, is, uh, just carried by you guys and I appreciate it. And, and, uh, this is where I share your amazing reviews and here we go. This is a funny one. I, I, <laughs> this is a very recent review. It is left by uh, Guillermo Carlos. What is up? Guillermo Carlos one, three, two. He says, amazing podcast, five stars. Just listen to the last dance episode. Fantastic episode, Rob. Your podcasts are always amazing, but this one was exceptionally good. One of my prized possessions is an Image Comics Zero, number zero book, uh, signed by every original Image Comics member. I remember showing it to you at a recent convention, and your response was, man, I need one of these. Keep up the great work, Rob. All the best, Bill. Let the Bronco buck. Let the Bronco buck is a reference to... uh, Something Todd McFarlane would tell editorial about me. I am the Bronco, and he said that they should let me buck. I think that that may be in an episode uh, called The L Boys, one of my favorites that you should listen to. It's fun. It's good. It's good. It's a. It's, it's a lot of fun. Hey, thank you for that review, you guys. Thank you. I try and read as many, if not all, that you guys leave for me and for the show. It's so important. Thank you for all of your support. I am all over social media on Twitter. I am full name Robert Liefeld. R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. Robert Liefeld with the blue check on Instagram. I'm just Rob Liefeld with the blue check. I say the blue check so you know it's me. It's not some guy who's trying to shake you down for some donation because um, trust me, people show me, you know, and and, and and there's always somebody who's like, I represent Mr. Liefeld. And I, no, they don't. I don't reach out and do any of that stuff. Uh, so, so, so the blue check really is there to say it's safe. That's really me. I had some great discussions with people online before I came on the show today. It was fun just going back and forth on all different sorts of stuff because you guys know every day something new is breaking. Some new clip is posted, some new trailer, some new announcement. It's, all, it's so much fun. I love talking to you guys. You guys can always reach me. Uh, at Robert Liefeld on Twitter, at Instagram on, at Rob Liefeld on Instagram. I am all over Facebook. This page, Observations with Rob Liefeld, has a dedicated page on Facebook. Check it out. I am also all over Facebook. The, the most current group that I'm active in is the uh, Rob Liefeld Extreme group. Uh, there's a Rob Liefeld and Extreme Studios. That's not current. The the, the, the one with Rob Liefeld, the extre- I think the the extreme group is, uh, is the most current one. Check it out. If you want to, uh, give us a shout, give us a follow. A lot of stuff goes on in there. A lot, a lot of great, um, great, great. There's, there's drawing contests. There's, uh, all sorts of stuff that's being shared. It's really active. I, I happen to enjoy all these different platforms. They give so many different opportunities to engage. And I love to engage you guys. This is the time of the show when we commit to each other, you, to me, me, to you, that we're going to take care of ourselves. We're going to take care of ourselves mentally, spiritually, physically, we're going to get our rest. We're going to eat good food. And by good food, I mean a bag of chips and a milkshake. Okay. I'm not talking about kale. Um, we're going to, we're going to have, (laughs) 
We're going to indulge. We're going to have comfort food and relax. And we're going to watch Halo and WandaVision and Moon Knight and all the cool stuff that's uh, out there for us in a world that is so much more amazing than I ever thought possible. And make sure that you circle back and hit me up next time because we are going to talk again real soon. 